everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm sorry, <laughs> I already botched it. Let me let me start over again. Three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm, talk- I'm speaking with Fred S. Naden about his new biography of Alexander the Great entitled Soldier, Priest, and God. A Life of Alexander the Great. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I'm a history professor. Before that, I was a railroad worker. I was a subway motorman and a locomotive engineer. I only learned Greek as an adult. And uh, then, after learning it, I became interested in Alexander uh, because I was also interested in learning some Near Eastern languages. And Alexander turns out to be uh, not only better remembered in the Near East than he is in the West, he's much more admired in the Near East, even though he conquered it, than he is in the West. Hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, Why do you think that is? It's because of, of the religious role that he played in the lives of the nations that he conquered. His method... No, that's too cynical. His belief, his sincere wish was to worship the gods of the place he conquered as the people there worshiped them, to submit himself to the gods, and in this indirect way, to submit himself to the priests and even to the public itself. He did this in Egypt. He did it in Syria, which was an ancient Semitic area. He did it in Mesopotamia modern Iraq, another ancient Semitic area. Then, oddly, he didn't do it in Persia, and things started to go wrong. And in India, he didn't even try to do it, and things went very wrong. That's an interesting point, and that gets to uh, the heart of your book, which I found very uh, fascinating, because we think of Alexander in the West, and we think of him as, you know, a conqueror first and foremost. I mean, it's, you know, kind of, you know, the essence of what we think of when we think of the great part of Alexander. And or we think of him as a uh, as a king, as a ruler. But that religious role is not something that really comes across in many accounts. What drew you to that as a particular uh, area of focus? One thing was that I wrote a book before about formal begging or supplication It turned out that formal begging, often begging in desperation, like throwing oneself on the mercy of a court, this kind of begging in antiquity always had a religious flavor. It was done in God's name. It was also a legal business, very often occurring in court. And this made me wonder how much religion there was in the ordinary conduct of business in the ancient world, especially Near Eastern religion especially when Greeks and Near Easterners were intermingling. And this led me to ask how Alexander managed to deal with so many foreign cultures that were so large, so old, so prestigious, uh, and so challenging. You examine that over the course of your book, and you take us into the various religions and religious uh, entities that he encounters. But I was wondering before we get into that, if you could start us off by explaining a bit about the uh, 
the fourth century Mediterranean world and, and, and the religious world into which uh, Alexander himself was born? Alexander was a Macedonian. Macedon had become a fair-sized kingdom by Near Eastern standards, thanks to Alexander's father, Philip. But it was also a place on the margin of the bigger picture. And Macedonian religion was very simple by Near Eastern standards. The main priest in Macedon was the king of Macedon, no one else. The king was a religious leader just as much as a political leader. Uh, The religion was similar to Greece with the same gods. Uh, But in Macedon, the king led the religion. The king represented his army to the gods and every campaign um, had to begin with religious endorsement from the gods and from oracles and so on. And every campaign had to end with thanks. The main way this was done was the familiar pair of ways, prayer and sacrifice. Sacrifice meant killing an animal commonly or burning incense or making some other gift. And in Macedon, the king would do this. Being king was a bloody business, killing animals every day or nearly every day, killing them in public, killing them for religious reasons, sharing the meat with other worshipers, especially his top officers, praying on behalf of his people, submitting himself to Zeus especially every day. Alexander's religious schedule makes the Pope look unemployed. (laughs) Now, how did this contrast with his counterparts elsewhere in the Mediterranean world? And if you want to maybe uh, look a little bit further ahead, how did this contrast with his counterparts in uh, Persia and other parts of uh, Eastern or Western Asia? Well, we can start with the place where the ancient stories about Alexander in the Near East uh, tend to start, and that is Egypt. He didn't get there first, but Egypt had a certain standing in the ancient world. Uh, And in Egypt, the position of the king was altogether different. In Macedon, the king was a priest and a butcher. In Egypt, the king was a god. He was considered to be the son of the chief god and was a god himself. And if you're a simple-minded fellow like a Macedonian, and you ask, how can a man have a god for a father? The answer is nothing so vulgar as sex. It's some weird business involving light and the transmission of fluid and a certain atmosphere and a rigmarole, and poof, you have a man who is no longer just a man. Well, it sounds like sex in some ways. This is incredible. (laughs) Uh, it's so you, he, he's it's definitely much more uh, ritualistic. Uh, in yes, terms it's of- more intense and complex, and it's also theologically more ambitious. Religious concepts are more complicated, and the boundary between life and death is a much more complicated thing. Okay, so when Alexander is growing up, is is he the uh, is he receiving any sort of special religious instruction? Or is that something that is concentrated in the hands of the king, and that's something that he'll be introduced to once he is expected to ascend to the throne? Well, he's like a favorite altar boy. He stands next to daddy. Daddy goes, chop. Alexander says, aha, you kill it. You kill it right there. You kill it with one blow. And then Alexander, as he gets older, begins to think, this does resemble war, doesn't it? (laughs) And so he's ready. He's ready when the time comes. Hmm. So 
is when he becomes the king with the assassination of his father, what sort of religious uh, practices that does he then immediately undertake? And how does you know, what is the religious dimension to his initial efforts to assert his identity as the new king of Macedon? The leaders in Macedon worship together with the king uh, as a matter of custom. They worship Zeus and they worship Zeus in one particular guise. And this was the guise of Zeus as the protector or sponsor of men who were companions to one another. A companion would be a fellow participant in the hunt. A companion would be a fellow soldier. A companion would be a drinking companion. And the leaders in Macedon were all members of this club or uh, not exactly sect, this guild or, or a sort of ancient masonry uh, centered on the worship of Zeus that the king led. Uh, they were his religious coadjutors or uh, uh, partners. And the first thing Alexander had to do was make sure these men, the companions, would back him. And he gathered them around and he secured their help by showing he could perform the rituals. They already knew he could fight the battles. He gave a few leading companions certain favors. He killed uh, a few dangerous relatives after the companions agreed that this would be acceptable to them. And then once he had the companions together, and we're speaking of a group of 800 maximum, although within this group there were gradations. But once he had these 800 men pulled together, um, he had charge of the country. Did that uh, aid his efforts to uh, quell the uh, unrest that he encountered further south in Greece? Uh, yes. Yes. Some of the companions are of Greek origin. They're not all Macedonian natives. And their Greek ties among these men are helpful to him. One example of a Greek uh, who is uh, a companion, or probably was one, because in some cases we aren't sure, was the king's, his father's own physician. This man, the royal physician, had a son who was Alexander's uh, instructor, that's Aristotle. Now, Aristotle, as a mere intellectual, wouldn't quite rate as a companion, but he would be in this circle. So the companions give Alexander access to many aspects of Greek life and politics. Hmm. Now, up until this point, it, what you're describing effectively is a, you know, an empire in which there is a, for lack of a better phrase, an agreed upon religion. They, they, they share the same, you know, cosmological worldview. When Alexander goes into uh, in, in, into the Persian Empire, though, and he begins uh, attacking the Persian Empire, he's dealing with a very different religious uh, uh, you know, theology, structure, practices, and so forth. I was wondering if you could begin by perhaps explaining in what ways the you know, Persian religion was different than, uh, than that of the one practiced by Alexander, and then the ways in which he engaged with it as he uh, began his conquest moving into uh, first Anatolia, and then into, uh, into uh, the Near East. The religion of the Persians isn't as well known to us, but uh, the rudiments of it are known. And it's good to begin to explain it 
by adopting the point of view that Alexander would adopt. He would ask, what does the king do? And the first king of Persia that Alexander knows about is Cyrus the Great. There have been kings in Persia who we can think of as Persian kings before that, but Cyrus is the one who creates an empire. So how does Cyrus use religion to do this? Well, in one sense, this is similar to what Alexander wishes to do. The king uses the religion and the Persians have a polytheistic religion. There's one chief god, uh, Ahura Mazda, who's somewhat like Zeus, but there are other important gods. One of them is a goddess, Anahita. Mithra is a third. And Cyrus takes this religion and uses it or adheres to it so as to rally the leading Persians around him. And he creates a kind of elite of his own, even though they aren't called companions. And they do share the worship of the Persian gods. Then Cyrus did something very shrewd. There is an Assyrian precedent or two for this. But Cyrus took this Assyrian idea and used it very broadly. And this idea was that when Cyrus conquered a country, he struck a bargain with the priests in the country and with the people. And the bargain was <clears throat> that Cyrus would go on being a Persian and worship as a Persian. But he would leave the people alone to worship as they wished. He would not interfere. He did have one requirement when the people worshipped. They should pray for Cyrus to their own gods. This was the main formula by which the Persian Empire was governed. Of course, the empire was very complex, and this formula had to be adjusted in places. In Egypt, the Egyptians insisted that a foreign king become an Egyptian, receive an Egyptian name, rule as an Egyptian, and therefore be the supposed son of Ammon, the chief god. And Cyrus's son, who conquered Egypt, Cyrus did not. Cyrus's son accommodated this Egyptian demand. This was the special Egyptian case. In most of the rest of the empire, the Persian king would worship in the background, so to speak. The people would worship uh, their own gods and ask uh, for blessings on the Persian king. And the Persian king would nod, and the people would keep some measure of autonomy. This is how the Persians dealt with their Greek subjects in Western Asia Minor. And in other places, there were variations. We don't know what the Persians did with India, or strictly speaking, today's Pakistan, the Indus Valley. Uh, we know Alexander's troubles there, but about the Persian dealings, uh, no, we're very badly informed. We know that for a time in Babylonia, the throne of Babylon was considered so important that the Persian king sat on it as a Babylonian. This was a curious affair, too. In Babylonia, the king was not considered the son of a god as he was in Egypt. The king was not a kind of royal priest as he was in Egypt. The king was not a priest at all in Babylonia, again, different from Macedon. The king was a sort of polite, politely received prisoner of the Babylonian clergy who tried to control him by predicting his fate through astrology, which was widely accepted. This is the period in which the Babylonians invented the horoscope, and they used it to manipulate rulers. We don't know of Alexander's horoscope, but it's not unlikely that one was cast for him. 
and the Babylonians would attempt to control a king in this their own particular way. Hmm. So we're talking about a uh, cosmology, uh, a, a relationship between religion and the ruler that is distinctly different. As when does Alexander start interacting with this uh, r- different religious structure in his conquests, and does his response to it change uh, as he progresses further into the Persian Empire? Well, the first thing to do was to um, cross over into Asia. And here the religion of the Greeks in the vicinity was very familiar. All Alexander had to do was recognize the local element. Ancient monotheism and ancient polytheism were both very local in character. Religion differs terrifically from one town or county to the next. And Alexander had to accommodate himself to this, and we know how he did it. Then came the next big step, which was to go into the Semitic world, in other words, ancient Syria, which is uh, modern Syria and Lebanon um, and Israel and the West Bank. The gods of this area, except for the monotheistic god of the Jews and the Samaritans, these gods were similar to the Greek gods, but the rituals differed. So Alexander had to accommodate new rituals and he performed them. He had to insert himself into this situation and the Semites, especially the Phoenicians, resisted this. At this point, Alexander is far from invincible, and the most important city, Tyre, politely told Alexander they would not allow him to worship in the most important temple, because, of course, if he did worship there, this would be a way of asserting himself as the king, and they denied him this very decidedly, and he was so angry that they would not let him worship in this particular place that he laid siege to the city, and the siege lasted six months a six-month siege, ultimately killing tens of thousands of people, and all because they wouldn't let him kill an animal on an altar in a particular spot and on a particular day. That really underscores just how important he viewed this, how how important this uh, aspect of his conquests were. It wasn't just a matter of physically occupying territory, defeating armies. He really had to establish himself in the in the in the uh, religious belief systems of the areas he was conquering, in order to in order to effectively rule them, didn't he? Yes, this is roughly roughly like the problem a modern country has occupying another country and trying to occupy it peacefully. In a modern situation, the occupier may use ideology to accomplish this. So when the Soviets rolled into Eastern Europe, they made sure the local communist parties came to power and they governed these countries indirectly through these communist parties, which shared an ideology with the Soviets. In the West, of course, West Germany was set up in a way that was roughly similar ideologically and otherwise to France, Britain and the United States. In the ancient world, this kind of uh, arrangement is achieved through religion. Just as in the world wars, it was achieved through secular means involving ideology. Now, we've already uh, you've already talked a bit about uh, Egypt and how distinctly different it was, and, and the contrast with uh, with uh, the uh, Hellenic world in which uh, Alexander grew up. What 
how, how did Alexander take to the Egyptian religion? And did he find it useful or did he find it problematic in, in terms of the differences as he attempted uh, an insertion of himself into uh, their system? When they told him he was a god, his reaction was, that's a promotion. <laughs> and he accepted it. In Egypt, accepting it was part of the job. And he did his job while he was there. He performed the business. We have a very small but uh, telling example of this. And I'm not thinking of the famous case where he visited an oracle. Um, I'm thinking of another case. On his way back from the oracle, which happened to be out in the desert, an oracle to Ammon, the chief god, the god who sponsored the king and made the, uh, the king his son, well, on the way back, he stopped at another um, oasis called Bahariya, and he ordered a temple to be built there. Part of the temple survives. He also put up a dedicatory plaque, or I should say stone. The stone survives, but it wasn't properly translated until about seven years ago. It had lain in the basement of the museum in Cairo, neglected for decades. Out it was pulled, or I should say hauled, it was translated, and it does something that helps us understand Alexander's position. It simply says, of course, I, Alexander, dedicate this temple, and I dedicate it to Ammon. But it says it in both Greek and Egyptian. This is the only bilingual document of this sort. The Egyptian contains the only complete set of Alexander's titles as a pharaoh. Every pharaoh, along with his divinity, received a string of titles. Uh, these are titles that make, well, Queen Elizabeth look feeble. Um, even Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia, couldn't compete with this. And the titles given to Alexander turn out to make him rather more of a truly divine figure, encircling the earth like a sky god than the titles given to any other pharaoh, and we know the titles of literally hundreds of them. The priest looked him over and said, this is the biggest ego in history. He's going to get the biggest titles in history. He's going to be the happiest pharaoh ever, and he's going to leave us and conquer the world, and we can run Egypt for ourselves. That was the priest's plan, and that's what he did. That's you raised a very interesting point as well, which is that in, that uh, this is not necessarily just a uh, one-way transaction. That Alexander is not just dictating to the priest where he's going to be. The priests are trying to cope with Alexander and fit him in. Were there any examples of resistance or uh, efforts to push back beyond what you described at, say, Tyre, for example? Were there more subtle ways of trying to put Alexander in his place or uh, trim his wings just a little bit? Yes, and this began in Egypt, and it began uh, among his own men. Uh, one of them, of the cavalry commander who rode beside him into battle, um, said, if Ammon, who was also called Zeus Ammon, to, to render it as Greek, if Zeus Ammon is Alexander's father, um, why hasn't Olympias, his mother, told us so? This was the Macedonian way of taking Egyptian theology and metaphysics and reducing it to sex. 
<laughs> and the general attitude of his men was, phooey. Alexander is not a god. Um, if that were true, um, he'd fight this war by himself. No, he's a very good commander, and we want to keep him that way. And we expect him to continue to be a priest for the Macedonians among his own companions and to perform his duties unchanged. And when he dealt with his own men, he stuck to the role that had been given to him by Philip, his genuine human father. The next trouble came, though, or rather one that took place about the same time, uh, did come with some subjects. Alexander never went to Jerusalem, a small town, uh, but he did leave soldiers to occupy um, the Hebrew homeland in Judah and the land of the Sumerians uh, just to the north of it. And the man he left in charge did something in Samaria that was so offensive that when the Sumerians rebelled, they burned this man alive. They burnt him to death. We know enough about the ancient religion of the Jews and the Sumerians to say that if a man is burnt to death as a punishment, he has not offended any human being. He has offended Yahweh. So Alexander left a proconsul in Samaria who'd made a bad religious mistake and somehow offended Yahweh and was burnt to death because of it. Well, we don't know what he did to offend Yahweh, but we know enough about the God of the Old Testament, of course, to be able to say that whatever offended Yahweh had to be something of a religious nature. Monotheism had somehow rubbed the Macedonian proconsul the wrong way. He offended Yahweh, and he was toast. So this is a second very small mistake, which was resolved by Alexander sending one of his toughest generals into Samaria and leveling the place and destroying the temple of Yahweh among the Samarians and devastating the country um, from end to end. So, there, so this was a mistake that he made fairly early on. Then he went to Babylon and in Babylon, Alexander performed very skillfully. They gave him his script and he followed the script. Why did the Babylonians and the Egyptians so keenly offer him these top jobs of uh, king of this and god of that? The answer, of course, is if you offer him the top job, you don't have to fight him. So there are no losses. And then he'll leave a small occupying force and go elsewhere. That was true in Babylonia as well as Egypt. So these were compromises, these deals between the priests and those whom they represented and Alexander who, remember, has only several tens of thousands of men who are Macedonian and Greek. Oh, the core of his force is small. And for him to govern the Near East is rather like the British governing India. Without the help of the Indians, they cannot do it. So what you're describing is this, you know, these issues that come up. And it's it's fascinating balancing act that, that you uh, outline in your book, which is that he is – this is becoming this is part of his conquest, but as his conquests are going into what might be described as more alien territories, you know, territories of greater differences, he has to at the same time, as, as, as you've already alluded to, maintain that standing among his men. And, and uh, how does that balancing act change in uh, once he conquers uh, all of Persia? And in what ways does that balancing act change as he starts looking further east and goes into India? The balancing act 
up until he got to Persia was not easy, but it was manageable. The men were grumbling. Um, they were laughing at his pretensions. Uh, there were now Egyptian priests in the entourage, and the generals thought these priests were ridiculous and outlandish. But the generals were getting plenty of pelf. The time spent in Babylon was the highlight of the whole campaign, like having the Red Army vacation in Manhattan with unlimited funds. Then comes Persia. The landscape changes. They leave the Mediterranean. They go up into the highlands. Um, They're dealing with the Persians on their Persians' own home ground. Alexander doesn't attempt to become the king of the Persians in the way that he became the king of the Babylonians and the king of the Egyptians. He might have tried, but he fails to. Is the reason for this that the Persian king he was opposing, Darius, was still alive and that the perverse situation of there being two duly uh, anointed kings of Persia um, would create difficulty for Alexander? Um, Did it have to do with his attitude towards Cyrus the Great, the first Persian king? Uh, Alexander went to Persepolis, one Persian place, where Darius had a capital, and Alexander, of course, uh, sacked Persepolis. But then Alexander went to Pasargadae, which was the capital uh, established by Cyrus, and the place that was still used for the Persian king to be crowned through a religious ceremony. Alexander went into Pasargadae, and he was very careful. No sacking, no pillaging, perfect respect. Cyrus is treated with uh, more respect than Alexander ever showed to any other mortal. And then he goes on, and he tries to chase Darius down as though he wanted to meet him face to face and strike a bargain with him. But Darius dies just before Alexander can reach him. Then... The throne is vacant and a pretender arises. And Alexander continues to offend the Persians on religious grounds. There's another temple in the Iranian part of Central Asia that Alexander lets his officers burn if he didn't order it himself. And this had to do with Alexander's and the Macedonians' repugnance for certain Persian burial practices. The Persians would expose corpses to birds and dogs. For the Greeks, this was hideous. And this may have made it especially difficult for Alexander to adjust to Persia. It's an interesting uh, uh, point to bring out because it it does underscore that the importance of not treating Alexander as this very flexible, accommodating, adaptable person was that he had these limits and a lot of what happened happened within those limits. Yes. You have to remember that all these religions, except for the religion in Samaria, are polytheistic. They all have a boss god who can be identified as Zeus. They offer Alexander an entree, but they're not identical. The Persian religion includes these obnoxious, as a Greek would see, hideous burial habits. It's the religion of an enemy army. Uh, Alexander is uncertain how Persian he should act. If he acts Egyptian in Egypt, that's one thing. If he acts Persian in front of a Persian army that he's attacking, that's quite another. So it was difficult for him. And he tried to compromise in Persia. He did adopt a few Persian ways, but only a few. He was much less interested in or much less avid at being a Persian than an Egyptian, a Babylonian, a Phoenician, and so on. Remember that ancient Persia, as I implied before, extends into modern Afghanistan. It's not just today's Iran. It's a larger area. And 
And of course, then he goes even further east than that. But at that point, we're he's dealing with some very different religious uh, structures. And as you explain, uh, he's that his ability to to balance that role is becoming uh, much, much, much more difficult. Yes, in India, he encounters religions that are vegetarian. For this man, whose notion of worshiping God means killing an animal, if he if he can afford it, and of course, as a king, he can almost always afford it. To encounter a religion that's without this is bizarre. Uh, and then, of course, he has to deal with the early Buddhist and Jain movements um, and the monastic intellectuals. This is something that's very far removed from typical Macedonian experience. And then, of course, he has to deal with India in both the Indus and Ganges valleys. This is a huge country about which he has very little knowledge. When he arrives in Babylonia, he has Greek books about Babylonia to guide him. When he reaches the edge of the Ganges Valley, he's reached the limit of Greek knowledge. He's now both an ignorant um, and an isolated um, figure. Uh, and he makes matters worse for himself because in the main, he rejects advice from Indian religious leaders. You've reached the point now where basically we've seen the extent of his conquest. And after that point, it becomes less a matter of conquest and more a matter of rule. And you describe how this is, in effect, the, the, the one challenge he can never successfully surmount. He can't just simply insert himself and move on. Now he has to deal with a lot of the more mundane aspects of what he's accomplished. How well does he manage that? His first problem was military. Macedon is not a large country, and some soldiers had to be left in Macedon to police the Greeks, who uh, rebelled, by the way, um, and were beaten. But this had a military cost because Alexander had to leave these men behind and leave one of his best generals behind. He had to leave another good general behind in Anatolia, which is so mountainous that Alexander had not been able uh, to effectively control all of it. So he needs more men. Where is he to get them? And the answer must be the Persians. Uh, and this, of course, leads to difficulties with his Macedonians, who don't want to share the army with Persians, especially since Alexander hasn't and can't become a Persian. So the, the army is disgruntled. Then there's the problem of running this darned empire. Macedonians don't have Alexander's knack, his personal knack and his training. You send a Macedonian to be the proconsul in a strange place, and he may make the kind of mistake that got made in Samaria. If you use a Persian, you have that problem because they may not be loyal. So next, you have to ask yourself, where do I put myself in making my best effort to control these problems, which will all be exacerbated by the sheer length of time it takes for communications to go back and forth across the empire. It takes months to get a message from one end of the empire to the other. Not even weeks, months. So you pick the obvious place, Babylon, the biggest city and the richest. And you go there to live. But this poses difficulties because the Babylonian priests are constantly making demands on Alexander and making predictions and attempting to manipulate him or at least influence him. And then, of course, you have the further problem that the war itself, 10 years of it, has sapped Alexander's strength and his uh, his will, not that he's crippled or weak, but the loss of his loss rather of his best friend um, hurt him. The, the cumulative losses hurt him. His own wounds must have damaged him somewhat. And on top of all that, he had the Macedonian habit 
of uh, drinking wine without diluting it with water, which in all the Greek sources we have, of course, explains most things that Macedonians do wrong. The Greeks <laughs> diluted their wine, just like proper faculty at a spritzer, but the Macedonians drank their stuff straight. And this, the Greek sources say, is why Alexander is prone to uh, drunkenness and prone to a fits of violence. And certainly, the heavy drinking weakened his immune system. So he goes back to Babylon in, shall we say, not an imperiled state, but somewhat weakened. And then the Babylonian priests announced to him that if he doesn't engage in a certain rather bizarre ritual, um, he will quite simply lose his life. And he has enough respect or fear for these priests that he agrees to comply with the ritual. This ritual is the oddest of them all. What happens in Babylon when the king gets into trouble is the Babylonians send the king out of town. Uh, they tell Donald, go down to Mar-a-Lago and stay there a while. <laughs> New York is giving you the cooties. You've got to get out and stay out till we clear the cooties. So down the Donald goes to Mar-a-Lago. Or a more conventional president goes to Kennebunk Port. Either direction will do. And the priests, the security experts, set to work on all those cooties. And in Babylon, what they do is they create a kind of vice president. They make him the temporary president. And then they take everything that can go wrong and they direct it at the new substitute man, the vice president. They direct it at him. They blame him. And when the vice president has gotten into enough trouble, they put this temporary vice president to death. That's it, Mike Pence. Your head gets chopped off along with all the other limbs. Uh, you're literally torn to pieces. And once you've been, well, reduced to flesh and bone, then, then the Donald comes home. And all is well because the vice president has siphoned away all the evil. Alexander agreed to this, but then he made a mistake. He was in the palace anyway, which may have been a mistake to start with. And he saw this ritual of the fake king, the substitute king, underway. And he saw a man who was an escaped prisoner. So the Greek sources tell us, and they're probably right about this. Because the vice president in the Babylonian scheme of things is never the former governor of a state of Indiana. He's merely a criminal. So they had this criminal sitting on the throne. And they were going through this ritual of letting this criminal sit on this throne and be temporary king. And they were going about the business, and Alexander barges into the room with some ignorant Macedonians, and they say, Alexander, look at this. There's this, this, this usurper on your throne. You better kill him. So Alexander has the usurper killed, and that, of course, means the ritual has gone wrong. Killing the usurper at the wrong time is fatal. Not to the usurper, but to the actual king. No, Alexander blunders badly, and the Babylonian priests then tell him, you have bollocked up this ritual. This ritual was the way for you to stay safe in a time of danger. The ritual cannot be saved or redone. And we, the priests, we wash our hands of you. And that's literally what they would do. We dismiss you. You will now rule the city by yourself. And this is just before Alexander's final illness, a matter of weeks, maybe a month or two. Wow. Now, of course, when he dies, it creates this uh, 
you know, this other interaction with religion, which is the notion of the rites involving his death and burial. And yet he's on the one hand, the ruler of this gigantic empire, which incorporates all these other traditions into which he's concerned himself. And yet you can't really bury him according to all these traditions because of how they often sometimes contradict each other. So how how does religion play a role in terms of the management of Alexander's uh, procession and his uh, final resting? Just as you say, it was a mess. Um, you can have one man be one king in one place and another king in another place with religions to match. But you can't have him actually buried in two places. You can't have him simultaneously buried in two different ways. You can't bury him sequentially. What do you do? Well, the mess began, first of all, with there being no successor. That is to say, no adult male Macedonian prince. Um, that's what was required, and especially a prince who would be competent in military matters. So a council of generals has to decide, and this, of course, makes it even worse because the business is put in the hands of a committee. What do they do? Well, Alexander was fond of Egypt, so they let the Egyptians come in and prepare the body. But the generals don't want to have Alexander sent off to Egypt. The Egyptians would like that. But no, the generals don't like that. Alexander's body and burying it will confer prestige on the generals in charge. It's a way of staying close to Alexander, even in his death. And the generals want to keep the body and bury the body. And then, of course, the generals can't agree where to do this. They squabble. Alexander's family has some rights here, and they start squabbling too, especially his mother. And one party insists he must go up to Macedon to be buried, which is a very long way. Well, the Egyptian embalmers can meet that challenge. They just don't want the body to go up there. So after a very long delay as the generals squabble, the body leaves Babylon in a hearse, a very fancy piece of work indeed. And we have a good idea of what it looked like, and I supply an illustration. And it goes slowly out of Babylon, and it goes every bit as slowly as that train taking Abraham Lincoln back to Springfield. Um, the, the long road back to Babylon, like the long um, road to Springfield, is full of small towns um, where the locals can um, come out um, and watch the, uh, the official procession, um, pay their respects, and so on. And the body makes its slow way up towards Syria, and now we'll have to go through Anatolia and then go on to Macedon. And the generals are still conniving against one another. And the general who's in charge of Egypt, a man named Ptolemy, sends an advance guard up to Syria along the route that the hearse will follow. And he bribes the men in charge of the hearse, and Ptolemy steals the body and takes it to Egypt so he can bury it and he gets the prestige. The other generals are furious and they come and attack Ptolemy. But Ptolemy is clever, bribes some more enemies and keeps the body. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm doing something uh, altogether different. Uh, one famous um, work of ancient biography, and biography is the thing that interests me, is, of course, the lives of Plutarch. Plutarch's lives come in pairs. In each pair, there's a Greek life and a Roman life. And they're usually statesmen, politicians, generals, um, two orators. Uh, that's Demosthenes and Cicero. 
Cicero always pairs a Greek and a Roman because as a Greek, he wants to show the Romans they shouldn't be too arrogant and that we Greeks have some swell chaps too. What I'd like to do is write pairs of biographies with one English person or British person and one American person. I suppose in this situation, America has to be like Roman. Britain has to be like Greece. I don't confine myself to famous people. The first pair of lives, which I'm working on now, doesn't concern famous people, but ordinary people. The American life is that of a young man who became a soldier in the Middle East. Uh, he became, in fact, uh, an Islamist. This is John Walker Lynn, the so-called American Taliban of about 15 years ago, who is now in prison. The British life that is going to be written as a pair for his or to form a pair with his is the life of a young British woman who became a soldier in the Middle East after converting herself to a cause. But it was a cause of the Kurdish independence movement in Syria, which has elements of anarchism, lesbianism, and shall we say, um, a kind of uh, ecological socialism. In other words, she's the ideological opposite of him. But she did what he did. They both went out to the Middle East as young people and died fighting. Well, he nearly died and she did die fighting. He's going to die in prison, apparently. So this is what I'm working on, a pair of lives about these two people. That sounds like a really interesting project. Are, are you going to be looking uh, just at contemporaries, or are you going to be a step, uh, doing this with uh, some historical figures as well? I'll do some of, of the latter also. I have in mind to write a pair about Lloyd George uh, and Woodrow Wilson, partly because they met one another, but partly because they had similar backgrounds. They both came from, shall we say, low church Protestant backgrounds. They both were highly religious and they both came from parts of their own nations that were subordinate. The South was subordinate after the Civil War, and Lloyd George was from Wales, which had always been subordinate to England. Well, it sounds like uh, quite a fascinating project. Maybe we can have you back uh, once you've completed had it published. Well, thanks very much. I, I do enjoy working on it, and I do enjoy exploring the subtle relationship between the United States and England. Mm -hmm. um, the so-called mother country. Um, this is somewhat like the relationship between Rome and Greece. In many respects, Greece was the mother of Rome. Well, uh, Fred, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much.